This is a big timing comedy production. Welcome backstage. Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. VIP only. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are band-aids. Are you jumping or am I undermedicated? You're listening to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. I'm with the band, okay? All right, welcome to episode 16 of Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. And tonight is a fun episode because, well, we've got one of the most soulful dudes that you can possibly find out there. And uh, I'm going to tell you how I met him because we didn't touch on this story, but I'm going to tell you now. Um, I went backstage in July to Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland to meet Kenny Lee Lewis and the Steve Miller Band. And as I'm walking backstage and kind of getting the tour of the updated renovations, I was looking around and Kenny introduced me to Joseph Wooten, who is the keyboardist for the Steve Miller Band. And I'm going to say it was funny. um, Joseph kind of had his entourage with him, (laughs) I guess you could say, which included his first cousin, Shonky. We call her Miss Bam. And his beautiful wife, Stephanie, and a few other of their family members. And the second they saw me, it was hilarious because these women jumped up screaming and asked if they could take their picture with me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, do you, do you know, like, do you know me or something? Yes, yes. We used to watch you on TV. So these are women who knew me from Fox 45 Morning News back in the day in Baltimore when I did traffic on Fox. That was hilarious. Isn't that funny, Mikey? I love it. (laughs) So there I am hanging with the Steve Miller band, and these women want to take a picture with me. Bam! Yeah, I love her. I love Bam. She's cool. Really, really like that girl. So I met Joseph, and um, he was telling me how he's an author and he wrote his book, And he has the most magical fingers you could possibly watch from an audience. And here's our interview, me and Joseph Wooten. Hey, everybody, I am here with my buddy, Joseph Wooten, who is uh, not only the keyboardist for the Steve Miller Band, but he is an arranger, a producer, an educator, a motivational speaker. He's a three-time Grammy-nominated artist who has been the keyboardist for the Steve Miller Band since 1993. And he is part of a band of Wooten Brothers. Uh, please give it up for my buddy, Mr. Joseph Wooten. Hey there, buddy. How you doing there, Meredith? <laughs> I'm just fine. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And you know, it's that's how new it is to my resume. I am now also an author. So Yes, you are an author. We're going to dive all into that because I want to hear all about your book, It All Matters. And it's on Amazon. Um, and I just checked on it today. Did you know that if you order his book today, It All Matters, you are able to get it by Christmas? That's a good point. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) If you order It All Matters by Mr. Joseph Wooten on Amazon, you can get it by Christmas. The magic of Amazon. Think about it. (laughs) So it makes a great, great Christmas present. So tell me about, you know, when I like following you on Facebook because I like to see your posts and 
um, all of the different things that you have to say. And it really is from things that you believe, the words that you live by every day, and you uh, put it into a book. Tell us about the book. Okay, the book is, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. It's uh, what I believe in words that I live by. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. My mother was very wise, and she gave all the brothers, you know, food for thought, things to live by. And uh, I wish that she had written all those things down because she was so full of wisdom. So I thought to myself, I think I'll do that as I, I'll just sort of keep up with my, with the thoughts that I feel like, you know, could stand to go forward. So for about four years, I uh, kept up with them and I keep them. I should have brought you the original book, uh, the, the handwritten book, but, uh, I keep it in this handwritten book that I carry with me. And somebody said, you should publish it. So I did. There it is. Yeah, it all matters. Words that I live by, uh, what I believe, Joseph Wooten Wisdom. It's available on Amazon. And uh, so far, everybody that's read it has given me a good, a good response. So that always makes me feel good. Every now and then you'll, you'll meet somebody that, say that, that says that the book really helped them. And that's really you know, why you do what you do. It's why you play music. It's why you write books. It's why you meet people because you want to help people. You know, um, it's true because, uh, like I said, uh, I, I see the things that you put on Facebook. You have a, a very positive spin to a lot of situations that we have been watching in the press lately. Um, mm -hmm. You are opinionated in the sense that you have these words of wisdom to kind of spew out to people. And I love that because I read everything that you post. I take mm -hmm. it to heart. Um, we're in a time now that is incredibly troubled in certain ways. And um, even more so with, you know, these sexual harassment allegations coming out and the, um, you know, the, the office that we have right now at the White House is, you know, sometimes is scary. And you, when you uh, put these things out, you put a positive spin on everything that you say. And well, I want to, yeah, I mean, I want to hear about that. Well, the way that I see it is, I don't really see it as a positive spin. I see it as things are positive. And uh, too many times we look at them with a negative spin because life is, life is, it's a good thing if you're here to see it. You know, a lot of things have to go right for you to have a bad day. You know, yeah. the, the, I mean, the things we take too many things for granted. The Earth revolves perfectly. We, you know, if the if this orbit gets two inches closer to the sun, we burn up. You know, if it gets a little bit farther away, we freeze. Yet it all goes perfectly, and it goes so perfectly that we don't really think of it as a good thing. You know, every day starts with a glorious sunset, finishes with a glorious. I'm sorry, starts with a glorious sunset, finishes. I'm saying that wrong. There's a sunset and a sunrise at the beginning and the end <laughs> of every day. We hear you. Glorious. And we take them for granted because we have them every day. And then we'll see something you know, like sexual harassment, which is bad. It's bad, but it's not the norm. It's it's happening too much. It's happening too much. But it, it's I, I see it similar to when you're driving down the street and not when you're driving during the day. And you encounter a bunch of drivers and almost every single one of them does what they're supposed to. But if somebody cuts you off 
we go, well, man, these Nashville drivers or whatever city you're from, man, they'll just cut you off. And that's more of us putting a negative spin on the day than it is the fact that people really drive terribly. That's true. I mean, a lot of the reason the reason I try to put a positive outlook on it is because life is more good than it is bad. That, that that doesn't mean that we don't need to take care of the things that are bad. That just means that we have to acknowledge the things that are good if we plan on effectively taking care of the things that are bad. Like you take our president. You know, the president can't be who he is unless he has followers. Right? The problem is down here. That's what I tell people. They'll blame, you know, the president or they'll blame the media. Everybody has somebody to blame. And I'm like, you're having an argument with me here on my Facebook page. The president ain't here. The media is not here. It's like, you and I, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just us. And if we can't even get along on my Facebook page, how do you expect them to do it in Washington? Mm-hmm. It's down here. And I mean, and, and uh, uh, um, an example that I use is like people will blame a lot of things on Donald Trump. And there's, there's, in my opinion, plenty of negative things to say about Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was the same person eight years ago. And he was irrelevant. Eight years ago, the people were in a different mindset. The people were already to, the people were in the mindset where they were so ready to show that we're not who we used to be. We're not racist. We're not, we're going to vote for a black president. And that felt good to most people. Donald Trump was still who he was then. He still was claiming the president wasn't American and he didn't have an American passport. But at that time, he was irrelevant because it starts with who the people are. It doesn't start with who the politicians are. The politicians are secondary. So our job as people is to solve our differences here. I mean, we find somebody that doesn't think like you and have a conversation with them. When we can work it out down here, they'll have to work it out up there. How do you tie music into, I guess, making people comfortable in today's society? How does music tie in? The good thing about music is, the good thing about music is that music has an advantage. And that music can make its point and bypass all the conceptualizing. Like a politician can't do that. Like if you turn on CNN right now, they're dissecting words and they're going over and there's four or five different people to muddy the water of whatever was said or done. With music, if I say, like I have a song called We're All In This Together. We are all in this together. If you feel it, game is over. You know what I mean? You walk away with that message. So that's the reason why music music is such a, po- a powerful tool for change. Because once, once music puts it into words, puts it into melody, once you receive it, game is, you think of all your favorite music, There's nothing anybody can say to you to separate you from the message that you got. You know, a good example is uh, the song Serpentine Fire by by Earth, Wind & Fire. Tell a story, morning glory, all about the serpentine. Most people don't even know what the song is talking about. But the feeling that it gives you is undeniable. It lifts you up and makes you feel better. And uh, that's the advantage that music has that politics doesn't have, that conversation 
doesn't have. Music, music, as soon as you feel it, game is over. So a politician who's armed, the right, I'm sorry, the right kind of musician who's armed with the right kind of music can make undeniable change. I'm going to ask you a question. I wasn't planning on asking you this question, but because I just I'm feeling it um, okay. and I would like your opinion on it. I feel like we got into a time where music um, really was geared towards sometimes being a little negative towards women, especially mm-hmm. and not to stereotype, but sometimes more so in the rap world. I'm wondering if with all of this happening, do you see maybe musicians changing their tune a little bit and creating music that is a little bit more empowering for women. I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah, Music follows culture. I mean, music leads culture, but music follows culture too. Mm -hmm. Um, Music is effective. Music is effective because it, it caters to the listener. It takes into consideration the mindset of the listener. So, when people aren't so misogynistic, the music won't follow. Same thing with the same thing. People will blame media. You know, the media gives us back what we want. The media knows what we want. So it gives us back sex and violence. But I I always remind people that if you watch television, you'll see there's a supplement called CoQ10. CoQ10 can afford television time because people are getting healthy. Yeah. Like nobody went, you know, CoQ10 is really exciting. You know what I mean? <laughs> they did it because as people change, television changes, right? Look at look at uh, look at where Hillary was at the beginning of the election and towards the end. She started out way in the center. By the end, because people's mindset changed, she was way far left. Same thing with musicians and and sexism. Mm-hmm. As as society changes, if people want to keep making music that the public will buy. They'll change with it. And truthfully, like hip hop is not the only, you know, not by far the only sexist, uh, you know, rock and roll has always been sexist too. Trust me. Trust me. I know. I was just saying sometimes, and I didn't want to stereotype, but it seems like, you know, you get a lot more from hip hop. You did not. You did not stereotype. Okay. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about um, growing up in a household with your four brothers Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I said this off of the interview to you, bless your mother, because I have twin girls who are 11 and they are a handful and a half, five boys. Wow. We tell, what was it like growing up in that house? It was fun. I mean, it's, um, I don't, our house isn't like people, isn't like people, uh, think that it was. Cause we didn't, my parents didn't allow us to fight. So we didn't fight. We didn't argue. We, but, but we played a lot of music. So our house was fun. There was music in it all. It was loud. So, you know, you got to bless her for that. Yeah. But, and both of them actually, I mean, our house was, was loud all the time, but my parents always knew where we were because we were always home practicing. Uh, they led by example and, and didn't allow us to fight. So there wasn't a lot of fighting in the house. Um, Were your parents musicians? No, no. My dad could sing and my mother really liked music. So there was music around all the time, but 
Neither so how one did of them that really start played. out then? How did we start playing? Yeah. Um, when we, my dad fought in the Korean War in the army, right down there in the in the trenches, and not long after that, he switched to the Air Force. So me and my brothers all know Air Force bases. So, you know, of course, when you're in the military, you travel around. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Reggie and Roe were born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Rudy was born in uh, North Carolina. Well. Victor was born in Mountain Home, Idaho in uh, 64, and then we moved to Hawaii. So in Hawaii, the the school-issued instrument was the ukulele. So Reggie took Roy's, so Reggie, Roy, and Rudy are three, I'm sorry, are, are five, four, and three years older than me. So Reggie, the oldest, took Roy's school-issued ukulele and was, you know, he was a master on it right away. Uh, Roy was beating on everything, and he was a master right away. And Rudy took the school-issued recorder, who and he wound up playing saxophone. And he was a master right away. So Reggie, being 10 years old at the time, looked at five-year-old me and two-year-old Victor and said, if you do this and you do that, we can have a band. So we had a 10-year-old music teacher who showed me one note at a time how to play this little toy piano at home and taught Victor on a little Mickey Mouse guitar one note at a time. And over the next, you know, couple, three years, he was teaching us to play one note at a time that you can think about. I mean, the like Victor will always say, uh, he'll say, uh, people always talk about how amazing it is that he played, but he said the amazing thing really is what made this 10-year-old kid want to teach his two-year-old brother to play. Like, where did he get it from? Like, Victor Victor and I can say, we got it from Reggie, but where did Reggie get it from? There's the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's, it started with, it started with him. Uh, it started no, with Reggie. a ukulele in Hawaii. The ukulele in Hawaii, and they always... Reggie was saying they always made music, and I can barely remember it as a kid because I was—I'm three years younger than three years older than Victor, who's the youngest. But I'm three, four, and five years older than my three older brothers, and I can barely remember we would—if uh, we were fortunate enough to have straws in the house—they would bite down the end of the straws until you could blow it, and it would make a noise almost like a reed. And then they would take scissors and cut little holes in the straw. And if you blew it and moved the holes on the straw, it would make noise. So, you know, make a noise. they were making music on straws. Does it need to be the skinny straws, or can it be milkshake straws? Because I have both, and you know I'm going home and telling the 11-year-old twin girls about this story, and they're <laughs> going to want to start playing straws. I don't, you know, until they get recorders. They we have the recorders. <laughs> we probably, you know, only got the small straws. I mean, we were... You know, we weren't really the richest, so they were probably whatever straws came in. Probably, you know, just regular old straws, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you all are very successful um, musicians. How did you, I want to start to get into the 80s now, because you know where I'm heading with this. Uh-huh. How did you get to sing on Whitney Houston's debut album? When we moved, okay, uh, in uh, 
from Hawaii, we moved to California. We moved there from 68 to 72. California is when my parents saw that we were serious. Got Reggie out of school, my oldest brother, took out a loan, and went and bought real instruments. So in California, we were literally in elementary school playing nightclubs. My Victor and I would like take naps because, you know, we're in elementary school that day, but that night we're going to be playing from 10 to 2 in the club, 10, 10, 10 p.m. to 2 wow. a.m. Elementary school age playing from 10 to 2? Yes, wow. yes. In 1970, if you think about this, in 1970, we opened for war. <laughs> and somewhere we still had those autographs. We opened for war in 1970. Victor was born in September 64, so you get an idea how young he was. I was born in well, December of 61, so we were young, young. Two years later in California, we opened for Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> wow. Uh, Curtis Mayfield actually tried to sign us to his Kurt, um, uh music label. But uh, we were getting ready to move to Virginia. So we moved to Virginia in 1972, arrived in Virginia, Christmas, I'm sorry, Halloween night, 1972. And we did a lot of playing in Virginia. We sort of became the big fish in the little pond. So as traveling shows would come through the area, oftentimes, you know, you know how you get a local opener. Mm -hmm. So we would be the opener. So we opened for the SOS band and Ramsey Lewis and some people. We also opened for the Temptations. Well, one night we opened for Stephanie Mills. Oh, I love Stephanie Mills. Yeah, so Stephanie had a keyboard player named Kashif. And this is for before Kashif started producing. So Kashif saw us open for Stephanie. And uh, Stephanie had a couple of brothers that were managing her that really liked the sound of the band. So one of the brothers, Joey Mills, uh, and his wife were sort of managing us a little bit. And we were on this kind of East Coast, East Coast little piece of the tour with Stephanie Mills. So Kashif was like, I really like the sound of the band. Oh, oh, oh footnote. So uh, we used to sing people, Bryson's Feel the Fire in our show, you know, the old R&B tune. Yeah. And Stephanie... I remember being in a hotel. She's walking down the hall. She's like, I really like your voice. Yeah, there's a really high voice. <laughs> and she's walking around singing the song. And eventually she wound up singing that duet with Teddy Pendergrass. I was like, ah, I feel like I'm a piece of the song. But anyway, so Kashif played keyboards for Stephanie Mills. And he said, I think I'm going to get a chance to do some producing. If I do, I want to sign the brothers. So lo and behold, a couple of years went by. And, uh, he had, uh, you know, hits with Evelyn Champagne King and uh, and uh, George Benson, Melba Moore, uh, Howard Johnson. He was the hottest thing. So, sure enough, he we called. Got Studio Fifty Four, right there, baby. Well, wow. he called us, and uh, sure enough, there we were. We went to New York, and he signed us. Uh, we got signed to Arista Records through his new music group. At the same time, they were signing Whitney Houston. Yeah. Uh, so he he was producing Whitney's debut single at the same time he was producing our record. So uh, that's how my brother Roy, a.k.a. Future Man, wound up playing drums on her debut single, You Give Good Love. That's him playing live hi-hats, live cymbals, live drum fills over the drum machine on Whitney's debut single. And then when Whitney was singing the song, Thinking About You, 
I was harmonizing in the uh, control room while she was out there singing it because she sent me in this. I like that part, so he sent me in and I wound up. I wound up on the song, but not in the credits, unfortunately. Aww. That's the way it goes, but that's my voice. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I mean, growing up with that album, and I played it all the time, and yeah. I still think, and I love Whitney, I love all of her work, all of it, but I still think that debut album was, it's just set the bar so high. Yeah. I mean, well, besides she... the bodyguard surpassing that possibly i just think the debut album was spectacular yeah the debut. i think the debut album was probably was probably and that was the complaints by some is that uh the the debut single was pretty r&b and you know there were some that were you know that were speculating whether the song did enough with a voice that was that great i think it did but uh i think whitney doesn't always get enough credit, but um, I remember before Whitney Houston, if you were in the studio, the the black background singers, females, pretty much came out of two schools. They were either out of the Aretha Franklin school or the Chaka Khan school. There were like lots of Chaka Khan sound alikes, lots of Aretha sound alikes. And then here comes Whitney, you know, nobody had ever really uh, sung with that approach before. Now, after Whitney, you hear that approach repeated. Uh, uh, you know, the Christina Aguilera's and the Ariana Grande's and certainly Mariah Carey, which is kind of, you know, kind of, you know, Whitney with more range. You know, the original, that, the, the, the early Mariah, the early Mariah, the, the yeah, current Mariah. The early Mariah, maybe. Uh, but, um, I, I didn't mean to really have a critique of Mariah so much as to say the prototype from that approach to singing a ballad starts with Whitney. Yes. And she needs to get, she needs to get that credit. She ushered in a new oh, 100%. way. 100%. A new way of singing, yes. And there still hasn't been anybody who, uh, who I feel has really even topped her because she's just that talented and incredible. Um, which is funny because, well, I met you the same place that I met her. Uh, mm -hmm. Meriwether Post Pavilion obviously is very close to my heart. It's in Columbia, Maryland. And uh -huh. when I was eight years old, my dad was doing the sound for Whitney and went backstage as a little eight-year-old girl. And, you know, having this debut album, which I played in my bedroom over and over on my record player. And I think by then maybe I had a cassette player. And uh -huh. um, having dinner with her and her father. And mm -hmm. then on the side of the stage, and she's on stage at Meriwether, which you have played many times, and she pulls me out on stage with her when she's saying, I believe the children are our future. Uh -huh. And that was a very, very cool moment for me. The greatest love of all. Ironically, the greatest love of all was my very first, my very first uh, vocal solo in high school in the tenth, when I was in the 10th grade. The very first one. So I was, that song's always been special to me. And of course, you know, like we all know, she sang the snot out of it. You know, she just, Whitney was, she was something special. She really was. Very, very special. Very special. Tell me about, so, so who else were your early influences? Um, I know, you know, you sang with Whitney, but who else helped to influence and shape your career to where you are now? Well, I've always been a, I mean, the first person I think that I, that I, like, 
really saw an approach that that I wanted to emulate or or follow was Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stone. Absolutely, I love. I mean, Sly. as soon as I saw him, I just I just got it. He was he was cool. He was poignant. He was uh, he he had messages without being preachy. It was all of that. And then uh, the other one is uh, James Brown for sure. We saw him when we were kids in 1970, and my mother got Victor and I out of school with the intent of us going to meet James Brown. Went, knocked on the hotel room door. James was already gone in his private jet, but we met most of the band, you know, Pee Wee and St. Clair Pinkney and Maceo and, and Bobby Bird. That was pretty cool. So that was always a big influence on us. We opened for Curtis Mayfield. That changed us, really. James Brown was all about high-intensity excitement. Curtis Mayfield was about the power of subtlety. So that was a good juxtaposition to have when we were young. Mm -hmm. And then as a songwriter, Stevie Wonder, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I saw Stevie Wonder uh, here in Nashville and was so excited when I went back home. I stayed up for two days. I didn't sleep for two days. I was that excited. (laughs) Stevie was something else. Um, So you being a keyboard player, I'm going to bring up a past guest that I've had. Um, okay. I got to talk to Mr. Thomas Dolby in okay. September and I, and I hung out with Thomas and he was telling me about the, what was it? 83, 84 Grammys where mm-hmm. he and Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock and Howard Jones were all on stage doing the synthesizer showdown. Uh huh. Do you remember like any of that? It was like going back on YouTube and I, and I encourage you to go do that. Just just plug in their names on YouTube and just look at it. I think I will. That sounds exciting. It's fun. It's a lot of fun to watch. So tell me like, you know, just getting into like just to the synthesizer and keyboard talk and stuff. Um, did you know early on that like the keys were the thing for you? Well, yes. I mean, uh, I started out playing when I was five. So, you know, I had an affinity for it. But the thing that really changed everything for me was in in the 70s. I was too young to get into this nightclub. And uh, George Duke, keyboard player, and Stanley Clark came to the Rainbow Lounge in Virginia. And I wasn't able to get in, but Reggie, one of the brothers, took in a mini cassette player and recorded the concert on a cassette tape so that Victor and I could hear it. And I remember at the time I just had, a, I had a Fender Rhodes and an organ at home, a Yamaha combo organ and a, and a solid state Leslie. But I remember hearing George Duke who was playing a mini mode with a pitch wheel on it. And I remember hearing the keyboard go, and I went, what the heck is that? And and they said it's a, it's George Duke synthesizer, and I just couldn't wait to make my keyboard be that expressive, you know, to be able to you play vibrato and pitch bends and all that, and that just that just really changed me. That and Edgar Winters Frankenstein oh to me when Edgar Winters. Edgar Winters playing Frankenstein is, to me, 
Destiny is the song that put the synthesizer effectively into rock and roll. Yeah. It had always been it had always been an effect I mean people knew that it did effects. You know, we 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 you know what I mean? We all knew that it did that, but with and then uh, you see Edgar Winter live and he does the whole synthesizer solo and you hear the oscillator. And it's like, here's this guy doing this electronics solo. And that, to me, is really Edgar Winter's the guy that put like the synthesizer in to rock and roll. And then, you know, Prince put the synthesizer into funk music in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Everybody's still doing Prince stabs and hits. And um, I've always, I've always uh, had an affinity for electric playing. I, I love, uh, I just love all the possibilities. Did you see Hang Dynasty, um, your bandmate Kenny Lee Lewis and Scott Page have a side band called Hang Dynasty, which I'm sure you're aware of. And they brought Edgar Winter on and his keytar. <laughs> he has which, this like, which well, a wasn't key- a keytar. It's not a keytar, but I call it one because yeah. he wears it like a guitar, but it's a keyboard and he has it strapped around him and it looks like the heaviest thing in the whole world, but he plays it like it weighs a pound. Well, the reason is because like the keytar, like I don't even like that name because it, because it, it just sort of broadcasts the fact that keep too many keyboard players wish they were as cool as guitar players. You know what I mean? <laughs> the keytar. Maybe, maybe guitar players think that they want to be cool like keyboard players because I think keyboard well, players uh, are cool. Uh, no, guitar players and lead singers, sax players never have a hard time with cool, you know, because you can, anytime you can take your instrument and point it at somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, you know, uh, use it in a phallic way. You can't really use a keyboard in a phallic way. You know? <laughs> Jimmy Looks Pen- like you're Jimmy a really Pen- good paper. Sax- you know, trombone. Yeah. What's that? I was reminding her of Jimmy Pencow and his trombone, how he hits people with it. <laughs> yeah, the, Chicago. The trombone may be another cool challenge instrument too, but um, the, 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 the key tar, it's like there's no really, really good way to play it because the way that it's shaped, you know, you can't really take your hand effectively past your middle without your wrist being out of position. Yeah. So it's really just there to make you look cool. The way Edgar Winter has it strapped on his neck, you can actually play it yes. with hands. So that's, you know, to effectively play a keyboard with a strap on your neck, you sort of need to play it. I call Edgar you. Winter, I know that guy in the, there was a guy that had a super big keyboard in that group, the producers. Yeah, he used to jump around with the with the thing, but I preferably just prefer to stand and play anyway. Which you do so well. I call you Mr. Magic Fingers <laughs> because um, I just want to paint a picture for people. Okay, if you're just watching Joseph right now uh, and hearing Joseph right now, seeing him on stage is a whole other entity. Because I've seen you a couple of times now. I saw you at the Hippodrome Theater in Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, which is an inside theater. And then I saw you at Meriwether Post, which is right. an outdoor venue. And so, you know, sound-wise, it's just interesting to see you at different venues and hear the quality and everything. Um, but 
to to watch you on stage the first time that I saw you, it, it's like I like it is it's magic fingers. You just throw your fingers over that keyboard like it's nobody's business, and you are just owning that stage. And when you have your solo, it's freaking fantastic. So if you haven't well, seen, if you have not seen the Steve Miller band, you have to go because you have to see his his uh, keyboard solo. It's cool. That is cool, man. Well, it's I tell you, I one of the things I like I like about playing with Steve Miller is that he lets you play as long as you know, as long as you don't get in the way of his voice, as long as you don't get in the way of his guitar, as long as you don't uh, uh, bring any detriment to the music. He'll let you be yourself, and he, he steps out of the way and lets me do my thing on Fly Like an Eagle, which is, which is always, uh, I always enjoy that song, because I always love that song anyway. Love, I always love the organ playing on that song, and to be the guy that gets a chance to do it now is, uh, is very special every night. I never, that song never gets boring to me. You guys got to tour with uh, the Peter Frampton band and that whole gang yeah. um, this year. Is it is it fun to tour with people that you admire? Because I know that you, I, I'm, I don't want to call it a bromance, but I will call it a bromance because we had Rob Arthur on our show too, and there's a lot of love there. Um, is it fun to tour with people that you admire and, and are good friends with? Of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the... Uh... That's the upside of music. I mean, the the downside of life is too many people are living the same thing but not sharing their experience, right? We go to work with people and, you know, you may sit, oftentimes you sit beside them all day, but you haven't shared anything. And in music, our job is to share our experiences. So, of course, when you share your experience, there's connection. Where there's connection, there's growth. And and, uh, you... You wind up having an affinity for people that much deeper. So, Rob Arthur, we both we both have the same job in different bands, and we both admire the way we do our jobs. So we just develop this uh, this friendship and this affinity uh, for for uh, what we mean to each other's bands and and how we try to live our lives off the keyboard. Ironically, I just uh, did my annual birthday Christmas show. Yes. Tell us about that. And you had Rob there, right? Rob played keyboards for me also. Yeah. He was my auxiliary keyboard player. And that was, that was fun as can be. Cause you both and are in Nashville, right? Yes. We both live in Nashville. Are you guys like, do you just live down the street from each other? No. Could no, you take we... a jog over to his house? <laughs> no, we're not. That, we don't live that close to each other. We're, we're, uh, we've made a pact to, for uh, me and my wife and he and his wife to, to go and like have dinner someplace. We're both still busy. You know, we're off the road, but we're both still busy. In fact, uh, when I did my concert, he was only available for one of the rehearsals because he had more music that he had to get under his fingers. So yeah, we're, we're off the road, but being off the road does not mean that we're not working. Let's talk about being on the road for a minute. Um, okay. You know, life on the road can be grueling. It's sometimes people have this glamorous view of it. And while there are many glamorous moments, there are also many grueling moments. And it's tough sometimes to be away from your friends and your family and going through airports and traveling and just the the drain of of it all. But um, 
now that I've talked to you and you were a, uh, a military kid moving from base to base, did that help to prep you for being able to tour and, and maybe even you like it more? Well, I, I don't think those two aren't really related for me. Like I never, the same thing going from base to base, you're there for a few years. So as a kid, the part of moving, like, we didn't move that much. You know what I mean? Like it was, we would stay in places, you know, four years, five years, then we'd move. You know, uh, I was born in Ohio, which I don't really remember. Then we lived in Idaho, which I barely remember. Then I, we lived in Hawaii from, from uh, uh, 64 to 68 as a kid. Well, when you're a kid, four years seems like everything. I did, I did, uh, kindergarten in Hawaii. So four years seems like a ton of time. Then we lived in California from 68 to 72. You know, that's another almost five years. And then 72, to, I lived in, uh, we lived in Virginia from 72 until I moved to Nashville in 90. So, you know, that, that moving didn't really bother me. As far as being on the road, just the way I see it, it never feels grueling to me. Because the hard part is always done by somebody else. Like, true. I've been on blues tours before. They were more grueling because, you know, you sleep sitting up in a 16-pack and then you play the however many hour show it is and then you pack it back up and you get back in the van and sleep, you know, sitting up. That's grueling. The Steve Miller tour, for me, it's grueling for somebody. Like, for the crew, yeah, it's grueling. If we do three the in a row. The sound guys, the lighting guys, the tech guys. Yes. yes, for them, it's grueling. They have a different story to tell than the one that I have. Like my day, I, you know, my day starts in a hotel room somewhere. Then there's lobby call. We go to the stage with the gear set up already. The crew has already done a morning's worth of work. And then we come in and we do the sound check. We eat. We do the show and then we walk, right? Then the crew gets back to work. We walk to the tour bus where somebody else drives. I, I go, I, I jump on the tour bus to ride. It's a tour bus, yeah. right? If I get tired, I go lay down. It's not like the, not like the blues tour where you're sleeping, setting up. It's a luxury. So, it's a luxury tour. I have been in your tour bus, you know. I yeah, have taken well, a tour of your tour bus, and it is really nice. And and I just want to let everybody know. I actually locked myself in the bathroom in their tour bus because I could not find where the button panel was to open the door. I'm looking for a handle. So it's a high tech tour bus just to give people an inside glimpse of, of how you guys travel. It's really nice. It was not that we do travel on a nice, on a nice tour bus. Just, just for the record though, don't, don't take everybody's tour bus tour. That's not always the safest thing. Right. You know what I'm but uh, you, you were on, you were with nice people. I was with nice but, people. Um, <laughs> Our days are past. Yeah, for, for you people out there, when they offer you the tour bus tour, don't necessarily. I take do it. not well, hop on anybody's tour bus, but Kenny. I knew, I knew, I knew you didn't. Kenny Lee Lewis but, uh, is a different story. As far as uh, as far as the grueling part of the tour for me, it's not grueling for me because, like I said, there's other people that that take care of the grueling part. The driver, you know, drives you know hours, and uh, and the crew. You know, they, if we do three in a row, that means they haven't seen a hotel room. They don't see a hotel room till a day off. Mm -hmm. So they 
have a different story to tell about whether it's grueling or not. The challenge for me, maybe like I'm vegan and I, and I eat really healthy. Mm. The challenge sometimes is finding uh, is finding super healthy food in some of the locations. But uh, I'm not gonna compl- I'm not gonna complain about that, man. There's some people out there with some tough lives. Do you? Put- I'm not gonna complain about being able to find vegan food in like a little known town, you know. Well, don't you guys have riders so you can put a request for catering oh, and? Which is why I don't have much trouble. Uh, there's no rider on a day off. You know what I mean? So sometimes you have a day off, and some cities are more conducive to healthy eating than others. But on tour days, seldom, seldom do I have trouble finding something to eat. Every, every now and then, there might be a caterer that uh, that didn't do as good a job with the vegan food as as others. But you know, I'm, I'm not going to complain about. Well, that. note to self: I, the last time I came to your tour bus, I brought a big thing of burger cookies. So now <laughs> I know when I come to visit you this upcoming year, wherever you guys are going to be, because I will be visiting you at some point. I will. Okay. Bring, I will have to bring vegan cookies, Mike. Write it down, Mike. I'm gonna. Write, I'm gonna bring him vegan cookies. I always bring. I always like to bring people sweets, you know, because it's something sweet on the road that you guys need. Sweet on the road to eat. Yeah, eating on the road is the. That's the because there's so much food around all the time. That's where you sort of need your discipline, because all the food that you like the most is there. All the time. Do you, do you, I just really want to ask a personal question here. You're going to laugh. Do you drink um, Kenny Lee Lewis's shakes when he makes them? Do I drink his shakes when he makes them? Yes. He makes some crazy shakes, puts beets and all sorts of stuff in them. Well, believe it or not, Kenny got that from me. I'm the, uh, I've been a healthy, you know, I've always been the healthy eater, you know. When I joined the band, I was vegetarian. Probably five years ago, I became vegan. So, you know, the juicer is backstage largely because of me, you know. Oh, so the real story comes out. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, it's, everybody is, when you're traveling, you're trying to be, you want to be as healthy as possible. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, as far as the beats, the beats are back there because of me. You know, I'm the one who requested beats and kale and, you know, that's on my writer. Beats, oh. kale, carrots, ginger. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, Kenny Lee Lewis took your beats and took your kale. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's, uh, there's enough for everybody. I'm kidding. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just no, ribbing a little bit. I'm just ribbing a little bit. Um, yeah, there's, there's enough for everybody back there. And, uh, heck, you know. I, I didn't. I certainly didn't invent juicing, so I'm not going to try to claim it. Right? <laughs> That's okay. You can claim it. It's all good. It's all good. But now you know if it starts to smell fishy, then you know he put one of his fish that he caught in there in that thing, and then you're going to have to have some fighting words with him. I'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> Tell me, how did you get into the Steve Miller Band? I was in Nashville doing a recording session. Uh, Happened to be in the right recording session at the right time. I was doing it with, doing it with a man named Chris McCarty. And uh, Chris McCarty, oh, hold on, Chris McCarty was uh, the co-writer of uh, Swingtown. Mm. And he knew Steve had put the word out that, uh, that uh, his keyboard player had just quit. Uh, Ricky Peterson had just you know moved on. So he had a tour coming. 
and was looking for a keyboard player. So did this recording session and he was telling me about the opening in the Steve Miller band and and uh, he gave me Steve's mailing address. So I mailed in an audition cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. Uh, and I got the gig. I, 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 I did a funky loop of abracadabra. And I put an organ solo, a piano solo, and a synthesizer solo on it. And then I sent, I sent a snippet of me uh, singing with Whitney on her record. And then uh, I had just done, because I was surviving a lot singing, doing sound-alike work, where you sing to sound like the artist, and then they sell that recording at different, like karaoke or, or you know, carnival. Oh. Quote unquote studios. That's cool. And I had ju- I had just done an a cappella version of Boys to Men's It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. So that Steve so I sent that in also so that Steve would know that I was a good harmony singer. You know, I and- love I love that song. I'm gonna ask you to sing a little. <laughs> Will you do it? If I put well, you on the I mean- spot. <laughs> Well, all right. I won't you know, put you on the spot. I won't put you on the spot. I, I, I appreciate it. I, I didn't really come prepared to prepare to sing, but it um, it was me doing all four parts of the harmony. So uh, so he would know that I was a good harmony singer, too, because I knew wow. that was that was also part of the gig. And lo and behold, uh, a few days later, my uh, was I married yet? Yes. My then wife, Heidi says, um, you know, you have a phone call. I think it's Dave Miller. And uh, I got on the phone and he was like, it's a, I really love your audition tape and uh, it's the kind of gig you could have for the next 10 years if you wanted it. And he invited to fly me out to uh, Idaho to meet me, which is uh, something that I'll tell young musicians that, that uh, even when you're good enough for the gig, you still have to, you still have to be able to get along with whoever the uh, leader is. So mm-hmm. before I got the gig, even though he liked my playing, he liked my singing, I had to meet him, and we hit it off. And uh, it will be twenty five years to the day on March the twelfth. That's awesome. Is that crazy? Time that flies. is crazy. And you're still having a blast. I am. I it always am. looks like I, you're I, having a blast on stage. I am having a blast. You, in life, it's important to keep things in perspective. I mean, that's where happiness is. Happiness is not in this happening or that happening. It's in keeping the things that do happen in perspective. And, you know, shoot, I just, I got married. I got remarried on December 22nd. Yes, you're coming up to your one year anniversary? We're coming up. uh, My birthday is on December 15th. One week later is my anniversary. Happy birthday. Happy early anniversary to you and the beautiful Stephanie, who I've met and is lovely, lovely. I love her. Yeah, very, very sweet. She's a, she's a she's a good one. But, you know, my life is, you know, my life, all the big stuff is in place. My brothers are still healthy. I just played with them the other day. Uh, yeah, your brother was just on Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, Victor was just on The Tonight Show. That was cool as can be. Very, very cool. And you've got a TED Talk coming up on January 6th in Memphis. Uh, Nothing is everything. Context is everything. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, nothing is everything. It all matters is what it's going to be called. But essentially, it's talking about some of the same things we're talking about tonight. Where one of the 
One of the examples I'll use is playing all the notes of the national anthem at the same time and asking them if they recognize it. And when they don't recognize it, I'll explain to them that the reason is because there are no note, there are no spaces between the notes. And what you find out is that spaces and the context that they create is where the music is. And uh, it's not the notes themselves. It's the spaces between the notes, just like when you're talking and you're trying to solve problems. It's not just so, solving problems is not just a stack of facts. It's the proper context, and you'll never get to the proper context unless the participants of the conversation share their experiences. And that's where music has an advantage because music, the end result is always an experience. And uh, we'll be t- I'll be talking about that in Memphis. Well, I will be watching that TED Talk. Um, you uh, need to post a, post a link for that so we can so we can find it. And I, should, I'll, I'll, I will. Uh, I'll post uh, I'll post the link so you can you know it uh, lets you know where you can buy tickets where it's going to be what time all of that absolutely and and hold up your book one more time because I want to tell people again his book is it all matters it's on Amazon.com and if you order it now um, you can get it by Christmas it's a great gift and trust me I love his words of wisdom. His words that he lives by, I love I love reading your posts. I think they're so cool and inspirational and real. You're so real. That's the cool thing about you is that there's no it's not fake, it's not fluff. It's it's really heartfelt and real. And I love that. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate that very much, Meredith. (laughs) Well, thank you, Joseph. One more one more question. Uh, Rob was thinking maybe. You guys had so much fun this year. Is there a possibility that the Steve Miller Band and Peter Frampton Band will tour again in 18? Any word yes. on that? Yes. Uh, the word is that we're going to do it again next year. Okay. So 18 or 19? 18. 18. 18. Coming year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And any idea of when those uh, tour dates are going to come out so people can start getting tickets? I don't know when the dates are coming out yet. I don't think anything's officially released yet, so I don't want to jump the gun on anything. But uh, um, I think we're. I think I don't know yet. Let me just say I don't know, and then I don't, then I don't let any cats out of the bag before I'm supposed to. Well, you know you're going to see this one right here. You're going to see this one right here. <laughs> you will be welcome. You will be welcome. Bring in some vegan it. cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe I'll bring Shonky. Your your Bam cousin, we love her. She's oh, fun. Oh yeah, I, I, she, she's always welcome. Bam. She got to give her <laughs> got to give her props. Hey, thank you so much, buddy, for for hanging out with us tonight and talking to My us. Pleasure. Uh, My pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure to to hang with you. Thank well, you. Well, thank you for thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. All right. We'll see you soon. And hey, again, happy birthday, happy early anniversary, and Merry Christmas to you and your wife. Thank you so much. Well, Merry Christmas to you also. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, he was a fun guy to talk to. I love Mr. Joseph Wooten. Full of soul, full of life, full of character, and God, full of talent. That guy. If you haven't seen the Steve Miller Band, trust me. If you haven't seen the Wooten Brothers, trust me. If you haven't seen Joseph Wooten, trust me. Seriously. It's ridiculous. Watch that guy play keys. It's crazy. We are up to our part 
in our episode that we like to call Local Flavor, which is where we highlight a Baltimore band. Has to be has to be original, has to be from Baltimore. And um, interesting story about how I met our local flavor tonight. I actually teach a college course at Howard Community College in Howard County, Maryland. And I teach intro to radio. And so I was taking my college kids to the radio station there, the local station called The Dragon. And I walked in and uh, one of my former co-workers was interviewing a guy that day who happened to be our local flavor. So I met this guy and he uh, gave me his card and told me where to find his music. And I said, I'm interested in hearing your stuff. And he actually said he was soulful. And uh, I go, really? I might have an episode for you. I might have a place to put you. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Local Flavor, Mark Hopkins with Ain't Got Soul. It's Maryland. It's local. It's Baltimore. It's Local Flavor with Meredith Marks. The devil puts his headphones on He was hoping for another tune. Foggy jam that helps him get the souls collected He's been dreaming about another job Something he can always feel The kind of thing you know that really makes your head nod If it ain't got soul, well it ain't got soul Turn it off and turn it over While the devil ain't in hell and is on his way to hurl tonight It's on his pinstripe suit and a bright red tie That was sold by the Lord himself But they were always drinking nothing but the top shelf He's on his way up to New Orleans Little side that could make him grin And there's a blue note screaming from a head So well it ain't got so Turn it off and turn it over He's looking in and he's looking for If it ain't got so And now all the demons wonder why While the devil ain't in hell And he's hanging out on earth tonight
That was Ain't Got Soul by Mark Hopkins, local guy from Baltimore, Maryland, who studied music at Berkeley, loves glorious, soulful music, don't we all, and loves a good goosey, meaning he loves to get goosebumps from music, and his hope is that he gives others gooseys with his music. If you are local, Mark Hopkins and the Hotel, December 28th at 930 at the Admiral's Cup in Fells Point, Baltimore, Maryland. And we will definitely want to check that out because he is cool. So you can go to Mark Hopkins and the Hotel on Facebook and check out the rest of their stuff that they have on SoundCloud. Well, thank you very much to Mark Hopkins and a very special thank you to our guest, Mr. Joseph Wooten from the Steve Miller Band and the Wooten Brothers. And we're going to close tonight with Joseph Wooten. We are all in this together, but stay tuned for episode 17 coming your way in just a few weeks. We have Ambrosia. It is all Yacht Rock, baby. Ambrosia, Ambrosia, Ambrosia. Burley Drummond and Mary Harris join us. So come on back. You've been hanging backstage with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks. Now get your ass off the tour bus. This is a big-timing comedy production. If you're poor, you still got your worth. It don't make you last because you're not first. The sun shines on you, the sun shines on me If we don't get that together, then we're still not free I know that love is meant for us all And I'll pick you up if ever you fall If you need this song, I'll sing it for you And if you need more, then I'll do that too when life gets you down, hold your head up high Cause there ain't no shame in the tears that you cry If I believe in you, and you believe in me Then one day the truth will set us all free Free as a bird to be who we are It's last stone's words, everybody is a star a star in the sky that shines on everyone Says if we keep on pushing, we shall overcome Overcome the past and overcome the hatred Preserve the things in life that are sacred A kiss from your mama, a hug from your dad And keep gratitude for the things that we have don't have to be perfect, but we, we've got to do better, because we are in this together, everybody sang it, we are in this together. Just find forgiveness There'd be no need to feel bitter
Thank you. 